Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat sermon by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. Some rabbis ride bikes. Other rabbis, in fact, do not know how to ride a bike. I was a rollerblader all through my childhood, and I never mastered a two-wheeler. This is to the horror of pretty much everyone I've ever told. The thing about bike riding is that it's supposed to be a universally shared experience, that fully mobile bipedal humans have figured out how to wobble around on our bipedal vehicles. But this is not the case, not even for this Southern Californian. So when I need an idiom to convey how simple something is, I try out variations on that very non-inclusive bicycle-related one. So I say things like, it's as easy as popping popcorn, or it's as easy as blowing a bubble with gum. So you can imagine how proud I was this past week on a family trip to San Diego. I rode a bike. Hey. Now, we rode as a family. And when I say as a family, I mean we rented a four-wheeled double bench Surrey. It counts. Our littlest one rode in the front. He is a gleeful freeloader. And as we circled around the waterfront, we were ringing the bell with annoying abandon and singing the one song that we know about a Surrey, obviously from Oklahoma. We got a lot of looks. It was probably the bell ringing, I'll be honest. But twice on our circuit out towards the Embarcadero and back, we heard Shalom Alechem called in our direction. It was a warm and welcome signal. We were Jews spotted in the wild. During my childhood in San Diego, I am not sure that it ever happened even once that I was noticed for my Jewishness while walking down the street. There's probably a gendered aspect to this, and my family's level of religiosity also mattered. I wasn't wearing a kippah, nor did I dress with any sense of customary Jewish modesty, specifically Jewish. The men in my family didn't wear tzitziot or any other kind of religious garb while they walked out on the street. Where I was known, I was known to be Jewish by my peers in school who looked my way during token Hanukkah numbers at the winter concert, by my soccer coaches who knew that I didn't get ridden in on major holidays, and by my friends' parents who made a loud and special point that this cheese pizza is for those who don't eat pepperoni. Now, until my middle school years, I did, in fact, eat pepperoni, so this was particularly funny. I learned that I could reveal my Jewishness in conversation both intentionally and by mistake, just by the words I chose. Dr. Sarah Benor writes about this often, a feature of Jewish American life known as the Jewish American lexicon. There's word bleed, like dropping some Yiddishisms, such as, oh, I'm such a klutz, or what a mensch. There's also borrowed syntax from Hebrew and Yiddish, like, I'm going to dinner by them this weekend, which sounds funnier without a New York accent. In San Diego, you're much more likely to encounter a blend of the Mexican English lexicons than Jewish English. The expectation of how you pronounce street names alone represents the pervasiveness of that cultural admixture, paseo, calle, via. 
So if I dropped an oi instead of a yikes, I was outing myself. But I loved my oi. I knew how to use it. There's so much flexibility in the way that oi can be wielded. It's a shout. It's a moan. It's a bewilderment. All of that is part of prosody, which is the way that melody and intonation shape the meaning of a word or phrase when it's spoken or sung. Bernstein wrote it best in the iconic song from West Side Story, Maria, say it loud and there's music playing. Say it soft and it's almost like praying. Oi, I'll never stop saying oi. But I could hide that Jewishness too. As a teen, I was uninterested in the heavy responsibility of representing an entire people. A teacher would prod Will you tell us why you're eating crackers instead of bread this week, Hillary? And now, the Hanukkah song wasn't the token. I was. And I hated matzah. Was I allowed to say that? I had the privilege, if and when I wished, to mask my identity for the sake of comfortable assimilation. And perhaps this came hand in hand with the brain space of adolescence. Isabel Rosso writes about this shift in gray matter where the prefrontal cortex of the teen brain can finally conceive of itself as a truly independent thing outside of others, and that this very awareness trips our instinct to want to fit in. The narrative of Moshe is one of wrestling with the need to fit in in order to survive. We, the readers, know that this little unnamed boy at the start of chapter 2 is one of our people the people who's first known as a people under the wicked and torturous decrees of the new Pharaoh. He is hidden in a basket, but his identity is unobscured from the first moment when he's discovered by the daughter of Pharaoh. She opened it and she saw this boy, and this little one, this young one, was crying. And she had some mercy for him. Vatomer, she said, This one is from among the Hebrews. This one is a Hebrew child. When she opened it, she saw this child, this boy crying. She took pity and she said, This, this is a Hebrew child. How did she know he was Jewish? Rashi, who's our 11th to 13th century French commentator, he writes about this collective rabbinic uncertainty as to how she knew. It befuddled our sages, and it bothers me too. Rashi says on this piece of the line, she said it's one of the Hebrews' children. She came to this conclusion because contemplating what happened, she said that his mother had done it in order to save him, or that she had placed him there so that she might not look upon the death of her child. And why should an Egyptian do that? Some rabbis say that she knew that he was a Hebrew because she saw that he was circumcised. If so, we must assume that she removed his clothes and examined him. But there is no need for this. Thus ends Rashi. Did his circumstances give him away? His circumcision? A certain ineffable Jewishness that could not be erased? At first, there's this literary tension that the daughter of the very Egyptian leader who is hell-bent on destruction of the Israelites has discovered a Jew. And then relief that she chooses to save him and to raise him. And then discomfort all over again as he is raised with hidden roots and bereft of his connection with community and with God and with peoplehood. 
leading to a burst of violence and an identity crisis later in his years. Rabbinic voices hail Pharaoh's daughter as righteous in saving even one life, especially a Jewish life. Reading through this, these perennial waves of anti-Semitism and anti-Jewish violence in our time, I shudder at the reminder that too often, survival requires burying Jewishness. There are a lot of reasons to reach for a mask, a baseball cap over a kippah, a simple happy holidays, not just fitting in, but also fear. We are in a season of masking, or at least arguing internally about how we should outwardly identify ourselves as Jewish, which when you think about it, that arguing is very Jewish. And Arielle Caden wrote about her experiences as a German Jewish immigrant to the United States and the shift that she's undergone since October 7th. This need to hide is hauntingly familiar, something she thought that she had left behind with her family in Germany. She says, The other day, my non-Jewish roommate told me that she was happy we didn't have a mezuzah on our door, because if she did, we'd be afraid. My Orthodox Jewish friends are afraid to wear their kippahs on the subway, but on Friday nights, we still all get together for dinner. She continues, On the day of local anti-Israel protests, I had dinner with my Jewish friends and we sang. In fact, we screamed the words of Ariana Grande, Adele, and Taylor Swift so loud in our apartment that if an attacker came, they would know where to find us. We didn't care. We just wanted to be loud. I hadn't felt so exuberant in so many days. It had felt like the world around me was crashing down, but singing with my friends brought in so much light. We didn't know whether we wanted to hide, but together we could feel joy, rest, and maybe even be at peace. These days I'm still wearing my Jewish star necklace sometimes. It depends how brave I'm feeling. I shouldn't have to feel brave in America to show my Jewishness. But here we are. It is brave to be distinctive when the act itself is in defiance of fear. When Jewish pride pokes through the veil of substantiated worry, we are witnessing resistance, gathering in even greater numbers than ever for Shabbat Mincha and elevating Jewish observance to spite those who would stoke anti-Semitism. That is defiance. Refusing to take down mezuzot, defiance. Painting a mural of Jewish victims of violence on the side of a building in Culver City so that illustrated kidnapped posters cannot be torn down. These are macro suggestions of distinctiveness. They're amplified versions of wearing a Jewish star necklace. But of course, we wrestle with our willingness to be distinct even in relative times of Jewish thriving dips in that anti-Semitism sine wave. In an article from 2002, the former chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary, Rabbi Dr. Ismar Shorsh, wrote about the power and importance of distinctiveness when we perceive ourselves to be totally safe. He writes, It takes a measure of independence from the surrounding culture to perpetuate Judaism, all the more so in a friendly society. Our survival and exile amounts to a millennial campaign for the right to be different, individually and collectively. What a tragic irony. 
If having finally won recognition for that right, we would now divest ourselves of every iota of distinctiveness. As we anxiously await the results of the most recent National Jewish Population Survey, remember this was 2002, that was hot news, we ought to remind ourselves that the sovereign self is not a Jewish ideal and that diversity without continuity is but another name for anarchy. That which bears the residue of the ages enhances our sense of the holy and facilitates our quest for transcendence. Dr. Schorsch's wisdom in a mini-epoch of perceived safety resounds in this moment of Jewish angst. We are the inheritors of a millennial campaign for the right to be different individually and collectively. This is the source of this epic struggle internal to each one of us and internal to our people when and whether in the moment of real danger to step aside from threatening rancorous campus debate to tuck our high necklaces into our shirts, to place our Hanukkiot away from our windows, and when and whether to clutch tightly to distinctiveness, to raise a banner of Jewish pride, to be, as Ariel Caden wrote, exuberant in the joy of Jewish togetherness. A few weeks ago, on a walk to services, a helicopter was circling overhead. I walked by a Sikh neighbor in his front yard, as I passed him, he looked up from sweeping the walkway. Be careful out there, he said, gesturing at my kippah. Tears came to my eyes. From Jewish friends and neighbors and strangers, what I need is that shalom aleichem. And from my non-Jewish friends and neighbors, be careful out there. They are one and the same, a salve on the loneliness of being a Jew, an uncloaking of what it is to walk the streets as a Jew in 2024, steeped in pride and cognizant that we fight every day to safely walk through the world in the ways of Torah. And these phrases stoke kindness, a reminder that our humanity shines when we walk on our way looking out for others like us and looking out for the other. Rabbi Rachel Berenblatt published a poem to close out the year and welcome the book of Shemot in 5784. These are the words she wrote, starting with the title, poem written in my parked car outside the synagogue waiting for the bomb squad to sweep the building again, January 4th of this year. My first thought, every single time, you craven cowards, hit us with false bomb threats. I will become more visibly Jewish, though on reflection, what more could I even do? I mean, come on, I already wear a knit kippah and hamsa earrings. Anyone in town who doesn't know what I am isn't paying attention. And more importantly, you don't get to influence me. I let my freak flag fly and I won't lower my Jewishness to half-mast. If I listed everything I love about the Torah, the 613 mitzvot, our holy prayers, our holy days, our holy languages, we'd be here all night long. 4,000 years won't end now. We're still here. We won't stop. You can't quench this eternal light. It always shines. 
Balaam, the sorcerer from the book of Numbers, who is redeemed by God's puppeteering, speaks of the Jewish people as Am Levadad Yishkon, a people that dwells apart. I have lived both possible connotations of this phrase, the loneliness of separation and the pride of uniqueness. Somewhere in the tumble and pain of these truths lies the experience that my children will remember of the days of this war, that their people fought with chin up against an unyielding tide that sometimes crashed with obliviousness and sometimes with accusation. They will remember the nights I fell asleep in bed next to them, dog-tired from treading that surf. And like Rachel, I won't lower my Jewishness to half-mast. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.